Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 27 as we continue our study of the gospel of Matthew. And I want to read to you the passage of scripture dealing with the death of our Lord, though we will not be able to cover all of these verses. This is the unit of thought, and we will certainly cover the heart of this passage this morning. Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, And yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, This was the Son of God. This passage of scripture tells us about one of the most, if not the most, in connection with the resurrection, the most important moments in human history, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's the centerpiece of human history. It's the most important moment in history. Matthew, though, does not simply record for us the fact that Jesus died. He reveals to us that during the last three hours that Jesus hung on the cross, a number of supernatural miracles took place. Now, many who are familiar with the Bible don't seem to notice or pay much attention to these miracles associated with the death of Christ. And probably the reason for this is that when we consider the death of Christ, the miracle that we're focused on is the resurrection of Jesus. And so we tend to overlook these other miracles, but that's a mistake. Because each one of the miracles that happened in connection with the cross, note this, are very loud and significant statements by God to help us understand the meaning of Christ's death. In other words, these miracles are God's commentary on what really occurred when Jesus died. They are divine object lessons, graphic visuals that reveal to us the true significance of Christ's crucifixion. Here's how one Bible teacher explained these supernatural occurrences. He writes, the routes to the city that day were jammed with pilgrims coming and going as they prepared to celebrate Passover. Few, if any of them, realized the vital truth that God's own and God's true Passover lamb was dying that very day to provide forgiveness for all the sins of all the saints of all time. It was the very focal point of redemptive history. And yet, as far as Jerusalem was concerned, on that day, relatively few were taking notice, and few who witnessed the murder of Jesus had any idea of what was really taking place. But then, suddenly, all nature seemed to stop and pay attention. Now, what he's saying is that with these miracles, the father used nature to speak about the crucifixion of his son by making a series of miracles that declared the meaning of the cross. God broke in and used nature to declare 
what the death of Christ was all about. That is to say that each of these miracles are divine pronouncements of what was actually accomplished by Jesus when he died. They're God's commentary on the cross. Now, for the last few weeks in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we've been learning about the arrest and the trial and then the crucifixion of our Lord. Matthew has told us about the Lord being betrayed by one of his disciples, falsely accused by the Sanhedrin, lied about by false witnesses, physically beaten and spit upon by religious leaders, scourged by Roman soldiers, unjustly condemned by Pontius Pilate to die, mocked and made sport of by the soldiers, and then pierced and placed on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem while people continued to mock and insult him, even as he hung on the cross. But in telling us, notice this, in telling us all these horrible things that happened to Jesus, Matthew really hasn't explained to us why these things happened to him. In other words, he hasn't given us any comments or statements that help to interpret for us the meaning of the death of Christ. He hasn't told us anything to help us to make sense out of this mistreatment and the travesty of justice that Jesus endured. See, Matthew has made it very clear throughout his gospel account that Jesus Christ is Israel's true Messiah. He is the true king. He's the fulfillment of all the promises made to the Jewish people. But still, Matthew has not made it clear why this king, why this Messiah had to be treated like this and to die such a lonely and horrible death. Well, I want you to know, folks, all that changes today. It all ends today because Matthew reveals in the passage that we are about to study four miracles that God brought about at the death of Christ, with each of these miracles being a divine commentary on the meaning of the cross. So if you've ever wondered why Jesus died, what the point of his death was, then today, and Lord willing, next Sunday in our study, we're going to see exactly why he died. It's going to be an eye-opener for you if you've never seen it before. And more than simply supply you with information, the truths that you're going to be exposed to today and next Sunday have tremendous implications for your lives. Because in understanding the meaning of the cross, you will be faced with divine truth that absolutely demands a response. You either respond by saying, yes, I embrace this, I submit to these truths in my life, or I reject them. But you can't be neutral about them. And if you already have some understanding of why Christ died, then what you're about to study this morning and next Sunday will be a reminder to you of the glory of Christ's death and all that God has done for you and has promised to do for you in the future because of the death of his beloved son. So it's this passage that ought to leave you in awe of God because it explains something of what an incredibly great salvation we have in Christ. And so this morning, as we approach this passage, we're going to look at one miracle, the first miracle that God brought about in order to explain the meaning of Christ's death. And the miracle is this. It is the miracle of darkness falling upon the land of Israel. We begin by looking at verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour Darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. From the parallel account of this event in the Gospel of Mark, not Matthew, but in Mark, we learn that Jesus was placed on the cross at the third hour. That's what Mark tells us, the third hour. So the question is, what time of day then 
was the third hour because the Jewish people reckon time differently than we do today. The Jewish people of that era considered that the day began officially at 6 in the morning, 6 a.m. So the third hour then was 9 in the morning. So we know that the time that Jesus was placed on the cross by the Roman soldiers was 9 a.m. Now, according to all four gospel writers, during the first three hours of Christ's crucifixion, from 9 in the morning until 12 noon, he endured a steady stream of merciless insults and taunts and ridicules from those who passed by and saw him hanging there, from the chief priests and the scribes, and even from the two robbers who were crucified on each side of him. And we saw that last week, just an ongoing stream of ridicule, mockings, and taunts. And what did Jesus say to those who tormented him with such cruelty? Well, the Bible says that Jesus didn't say anything of a retaliatory nature. There was no response of retaliation. First Peter chapter 2 says, While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Jesus did not lash out with words of vengeance. However, it would be wrong to conclude then that during these first three hours on the cross, Jesus said nothing. He didn't respond with words of vengeance and revilings and cursings, but he did speak words of love. He did speak words of grace. Luke tells us that during the time he was on the cross, those first three hours, those who placed him on the cross, Jesus prayed to the Father for them. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Luke also tells us that one of the two thieves crucified with Jesus actually repented, repented of his sin and asked the Lord to remember him when he came into his kingdom, to which Jesus responded by saying, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And the apostle John reveals that while on the cross, Jesus made provision for his mother, Mary, to be taken care of after his death. He said to Mary, woman, behold your son, meaning John the apostle himself. And to John, he said, behold your mother. And so from these other gospel accounts, we know that for the last three hours, starting at 9 a.m., Jesus has spoken some very significant words from the cross. But Matthew tells us here in verse 45 that starting with the sixth hour, and lasting until the ninth hour, meaning 12 noon until 3 in the afternoon, something supernatural took place in connection with Christ's crucifixion. He tells us that darkness settled upon the land, meaning the land of Israel. That is to say that during what is normally the brightest part of the day, high noon to 3 p.m., darkness covered the entire country. Now, a dark sky, understand this, in and of itself doesn't necessarily indicate a miracle. After all, a severe storm can darken the sky. Even a natural catastrophe like a volcano can cause darkness to occur, like when Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79 AD and the skies over Pompeii grew dark. It's also true that an eclipse can bring about darkness during the daytime. So there can be any number of explanations for why the sky can become dark right in the middle of the day. However, this eerie midday darkness that covered the land of Israel during the last three hours that Jesus was on the cross can only be explained as a special act of God, a supernatural miracle unrelated to a storm or a volcano or an eclipse. Now, how do we know this? 
Well, for one thing, Israel doesn't experience rainstorms that cause such severe darkness, and certainly not one that would cover the entire country, the entire nation. Secondly, there are no volcanoes in the land of Israel. And third, the darkness could not have been the result of an eclipse because the time of the year that this happened was during the Feast of Passover. And Passover is always observed during a full moon, which means that the sun and the moon were far apart and therefore an eclipse could not have taken place at that time. Now, Luke, he gives us some insight as to what actually happened by explaining this darkness with these specific words. He said, the sun became obscured, meaning that the sun failed. That's the thought here. The sun failed. In other words, God intervened so that the sun failed to function the way it normally did. And therefore, from 12 noon to 3 in the afternoon, Israel lay in severe darkness. So, The question is, if God brought about this unusual midday eerie darkness, then why? What's the significance of this abnormal midday darkness? Well, Matthew doesn't explain the purpose of it, nor does he give us the meaning of this supernatural occurrence. In fact, none of the gospel writers do. They just mention it as a statement. They just present it as a fact. So in light of Matthew's silence about why God covered the land of Israel in darkness, there have been a number of interpretations given by Bible teachers as to try to explain the meaning and the reason for this miracle. Some have viewed the darkness as God's way of covering up the nakedness and the sufferings of his son so that nobody would see it. Others have suggested that the darkness was God's way of expressing his extreme displeasure with those who put Jesus on the cross. But that's not why. We know that's not why. And there is no reason to speculate like this as to why God sent darkness like this. And I say that because, note this, darkness in Scripture is often associated with God's judgment on sin. Darkness in Scripture has to do with God's judgment on sin. In other words, there are many places in Scripture when darkness on the earth during the normal daylight hours, is used to speak of God's judgment on sin. Let me give you just a few examples. There are many of them, but just so you get a taste of this. Isaiah chapter 13, starting at verse 9, we read, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven... And their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. But that's not the only place in scripture. It's not isolated. We read, for example, in Joel Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it's near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. Amos, chapter 8, verse 9. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. And Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly, near the day of the Lord, 
In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Now, those are just a few of the many verses in Scripture and even in the New Testament that speak and associate the phenomenon of darkness during the daytime with divine judgment. But perhaps the real key The real key to understand this particular darkness that covered the nation of Israel while Christ was on the cross is to keep in mind that back in Exodus chapter 10, shortly before the first Passover lambs were slain, God sent a judgment of darkness upon the nation of Egypt for three days. We read that in Exodus 10, 21 through 23. And now, just before the ultimate ultimate and perfect Passover lamb, Jesus, is slain. He sends darkness once again, not for three days, but for three hours. And why did God do this? Once again, pay close attention, because he was pouring out divine judgment on human sin. And it was his own son who was experiencing this judgment because Christ was dying in the place of sinners as God's full wrath was being poured out on him. And what absolutely convinces us that this particular darkness was indeed God's statement of judgment being poured out on his own son as our substitute lamb and sin bearer is that Jesus himself had words that spoke of judgment. Notice verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, these words that Jesus cried out are actually a quote from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1 to be exact, which, as I mentioned last week, Psalm 22 was a psalm written by King David prophetically describing the horrors of the cross from the perspective of the Messiah. Now, when Jesus quoted this verse in Psalm 22, he spoke these words in his native language, Aramaic, which is uh, very close to Hebrew, actually a form of Hebrew. And Matthew records them for us, both interestingly, in Hebrew and Aramaic. Therefore, the word Eli is the Hebrew word for God, and the words Lama Sabachthani are Aramaic for why have you forsaken me? So when the darkness covered the land of Israel, Jesus actually cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, how are we to understand these words? How could God have forsaken his own son? How could God the father be in any way separated from God the Son. It is said that the reformer Martin Luther supposedly went into seclusion for a long time trying to comprehend this concept of God being separated from God. And he came away as confused as when he began. And we understand there is a great deal of mystery to Christ being forsaken by the Father while on the cross. And it's true that no one No one can fully comprehend this mystery. No one can fully comprehend all that it meant that God the Father abandoned the Son. But it's also true to say that no one needs to be confused about the essential meaning of Christ's words. 
And the reason we don't need to be confused about this forsaking of Christ by the Father is because later in New Testament inspired writings, we learn why. We learn precisely what Jesus was referring to when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? According to the Bible, Christ's cry was a cry of utter abandonment. Why? Because during the hours he was on the cross, he was indeed separated from the Father as he bore the sins of his people. You see, the Bible says that God is so holy and so pure that he can't have any fellowship with sin. He can't smile upon it. He can't have fellowship with it. In fact, the Bible says God can't even look favorably upon sin. That's how holy he is. Therefore, the Father had to turn away from the Son and forsake Christ because while on the cross, Jesus was bearing our guilt and so he had to be treated as if he were guilty of all the sins that we, his people, are guilty of and have committed. Note this, for the very first time, not just in the 33 years of Christ's life on earth, but for the very first time in all of eternity, there has never been a moment like this For the very first time, Jesus did not experience the Father's smile of approval, that precious, intimate oneness and fellowship. The Father abandoned Christ, and thus the reason Jesus cried out, why? Why have you forsaken me? He knew the answer. In other words, the darkness that fell upon the land only symbolized judgment upon sin, but the reality of that judgment was being experienced by Jesus because he was facing the judgment of God in the place of sinners. That's precisely what we read in the Bible as the Bible explains the meaning of Christ's death. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin. God the Father made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He was our substitute. He was our sin offering so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God treated Christ like we deserve to be treated. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse, the damnation of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And then that glorious passage of Isaiah chapter 53 Isaiah 53 explains to us precisely what happened as Jesus was our substitute. Verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Notice all the substitution language. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. He did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke Was due. That's what the Bible says. Christ died for sinners. Listen to these words by Bible scholar and theologian William Hendrickson as he explains the relationship between the darkness that fell upon Israel that day and Christ's cry of abandonment. 
He writes, the darkness meant judgment, the judgment of God upon our sins, his wrath, as it were, burning itself out in the very heart of Jesus so that he, as our substitute, suffered most intense agony, indescribable woe, terrible isolation or forsakenness. Hell came to Calvary that day and the Savior descended into it and bore its horrors in our stead. Do you catch that? Hell came to Calvary that day and the Savior descended into it and bore its horrors in our stead. It should have been us. Listen, Jesus didn't just feel alone from God, feel isolated like we might feel if we question God's love for us when we're going through a hard time. He didn't just feel alone while he was on the cross. He was alone. He was alone. He was abandoned by God because abandonment from the presence of the Lord is part of divine punishment for sin. Second Thessalonians points that out. Paul writes to the Thessalonians and explains the future of those who have rejected the gospel. He writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty, he writes, of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. They will be away from God's presence. They will be alone in hell. They will be isolated. Hell is not having a good time with your buddies. Hell is not living it up. Hell is isolation. In fact, Jude has these horrifying words. Jude, verse 13, he says, For whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Forever. This is why, folks, back in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had agonized so much because he understood what the cross was about. He dreaded this cup of judgment You see, not only were the physical agonies of crucifixion just horrific, but the ultimate suffering of Jesus had to do with being spiritually alienated and separated from God the Father. And for those three hours on the cross, while darkness surrounded him, Jesus experienced this total, absolute abandonment because he was abandoned by the Father. So that, and here's the glory of our salvation, he was abandoned and forsaken so that those who place their trust in Christ as Lord and Savior would never be abandoned and forsaken by God. That's why there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why it is ridiculous for someone to think that they could lose their salvation. They don't understand the meaning of the cross. They don't understand this. That is to say that Christ was punished in our place so that we would never be punished and condemned to hell. That is the meaning of the cross of Christ. You see, when we come to an understanding of the meaning of Christ's words, why, why have you forsaken me? We see sin differently. We no longer treat it lightly. Sin cannot be trivialized by anybody who understands the cross. It's a serious matter. We are never to look at any sin as a trivial thing. No sin is a trivial matter. And we know it's not because we understand that Jesus experienced hell because of our sin. All of our sin. All of it. It's a sobering thought to think that every time we sin, we are actually belittling the sufferings of Christ and the very work of Christ on the cross. So as we return to our text in Matthew 27, the situation is this. For the last three hours, a strange and eerie, unnatural darkness has settled upon the land. 
at three in the afternoon, while everything and everyone are still covered with this darkness, Jesus cries out with a loud voice the statement from Psalm 22, verse 1, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, understand this. All the Jewish people standing around the cross understood exactly what he was saying, even if they didn't believe that his statement was a prophetic fulfillment. They didn't see that. But you see, as Jewish people, these are people familiar with the Bible, very familiar with the Bible. That means they're familiar with Psalm 22. This is not an obscure psalm. This is not an obscure verse. Therefore, what we are about to find out is that in spite of understanding exactly what Jesus was saying, they made a joke of it. They made a joke of it and used Christ's own words to mock him. Look at verse 47. And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Now, in the Hebrew language, the word for my God sounds very similar to the name Elijah, especially, I understand, when it's pronounced a certain way. However, the people who heard Jesus utter these words knew very well that he was crying out to God and not the Old Testament prophet Elijah. But because of the resemblance of these two words, they pretended that when they heard Jesus say he was calling for God, they said, well, he's calling for the Old Testament Elijah to come and help him. See, Elijah was an unusual prophet in that the Bible says that he went to heaven without dying. Second Kings 2 said he was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. So he's an unusual character. Nobody else is like that. Now, in addition to this unusual way of entering heaven, the prophet Malachi predicts that Elijah will come back to earth in preparation for the arrival of the Messiah. So as a result of these different unusual things that the Bible says about Elijah and combined with people's very active imaginations, over the years, a number of popular views and legends about Elijah developed amongst the Jewish people with the result being that Elijah came to be viewed by the people of Israel as not only someone who would come before the Messiah arrived, but as someone who would come to earth someday to rescue those who were oppressed and suffering. And so with this in mind, the Jewish bystanders around the cross, they decide to mock Jesus by pretending that he's summoning Elijah to help him when they very well knew that that wasn't what he was doing. But at this point, just when they start to mock the Lord by saying, this man is calling for Elijah, the apostle John tells us in his gospel account that Jesus said, I am thirsty. John nineteen twenty eight. So we read in verse 48 that in spite of the cruelty, And the insensitivity of those who mocked Jesus, there was someone in the crowd who was merciful because this person responded to Christ's cry for some fluid. Verse 48. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. Although we're not told who this individual was, Most likely, it was one of the Roman soldiers who, upon hearing Christ say he was thirsty, ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put the sponge on a stick, and lifted it to the lips of Jesus. Keep in mind, the cross was not very high up. Artists often render the cross way high up. It was just a little bit off the ground. This would have been a very cheap sour wine that the soldiers drank. Therefore, it was available that day because there were soldiers all around working. 
But even as the soldier was being kind to Jesus by giving him some wine just to quench his thirst, the crowd of bystanders didn't want Jesus shown any kindness. So we read in the next verse that they told him to stop doing what he was doing. Verse 49. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Now, according to the original Greek text here, their statement can be and should be translated, let him alone or hold off. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him. In fact, this is the way it's translated in the New International Version. Let him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. See, in their mocking of Jesus, these people are so low and cruel as to deprive a dehydrated and dying man his last drink. Not only are they cruel, they are absolutely hardened to the truth of Christ. Listen, you would think that the unnatural darkness that they've been engulfed in for the last three hours might have made some impression upon them. It wasn't an everyday occurrence. You would think that it might have caused them to consider the possibility that this just might be a divine act of God, a statement of his judgment, that it might point as to the truth about Jesus. But unbelief is wicked, and hatred for Christ runs so deep that all they can think about is to mock Jesus and to keep him from getting some relief from his dehydration. However... With his lips now moistened from the wine, Jesus is now ready to clearly articulate his last words before he dies. And so we read in verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. With these words, Matthew tells us about the actual death of Jesus. He tells us that just before he died, the Lord cried out, with a loud voice. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us what Jesus said. He just tells us that he cried out with a loud voice. However, the Apostle John does tell us what he said. John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Now, why did Jesus say these particular words, it's finished? Because the work that the Father had sent him to do was done. See, this is a shout of triumph. It's not saying, well, my enemies are finished with me or I'm finished with them. This is a shout of victory. It's not a shout of defeat. Jesus has just completed the work of redemption and he verbally declares for all to hear that it is finished. But his words go deeper than just an announcement that his work is over. You see, we translate this from the Greek text into the English language with three words. It is finished. But it actually is only one Greek word, a very, very meaningful Greek word. The one Greek word that is translated, it is finished, it's actually the word tetelestai, and it means the debt is paid. This particular word, tetelestai, or the debt is paid, was what ancient Greek people wrote down on receipts in order to express that an amount had been paid in full. The debt was paid. Nobody owes anything else. Tetelestai. It's finished. That's precisely, folks, what Jesus is shouting just before dying. My sacrifice is complete. I have paid in full the debt you, you owe to God by dying and experiencing an eternal separation and abandonment by God. Having made this payment by giving his life, Jesus said concerning our salvation, it's finished. 
It means that you can't add anything to the work of Christ on the cross. You can't bring good works to try to earn God's favor. You can't bring baptism. You can't bring religious deeds. You can't bring anything into your salvation. It's Christ alone. It's finished. The work that secured salvation is Christ's work, not yours or mine at all. It's finished. We just trust in the finished work of Jesus to be sufficient for our salvation. If you do that, you'll be saved. It's as simple as that. Trust in the finished work of Christ to be sufficient for your salvation, adding nothing else to it, and you're saved. And after crying out, it is finished, Matthew simply says that Jesus yielded up his spirit. Now, doesn't that strike you as unusual? If you thought about it for a bit, it would. It is a known fact that individuals who had undergone scourging, cruel beatings, and the agony of crucifixion normally did not have the strength to cry out loudly, and they certainly didn't yield up their spirit in the sense of choosing to dismiss their spirit and die. Nobody can do that but Christ. Nobody chooses when they're going to die. Nobody says, well, I think I'm going to die at this moment, and this is it. No. But Christ's death wasn't normal because his life was not taken from him. Instead, he gave up his life. You see, crucified victims normally died a very slow and painful death, often lasting up to two or three days on the cross. And then they entered a coma as their life just gradually faded away. That wasn't the case with Jesus at all. At the end, he was fully conscious and strong enough to shout out loud, and he surrendered his spirit to death rather than have his life ebb away due to the physical sufferings of crucifixion. And you know what, folks? That's exactly what Jesus predicted about his life and death. John chapter 10, verse 18, he said, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down. And why did he choose to lay it down at this very moment after receiving a sponge of sour wine? Because there was nothing left for him to do in terms of salvation. The purpose for which he came into this world was complete. He was born to die, and so having poured out his life, he laid it down. See, the death of Jesus Christ was unlike the death of any other person in all of history because Jesus was unlike any other person in all of history. In one person, we have deity. And humanity. Fully God, fully man. That's why, because he is the eternal God, he can make an eternal payment on behalf of sinners. Eternal. It means, in very common sense, practical terms, if you know Christ after you're in heaven for 10 billion years, the Father doesn't say to you, now get up and get out. That's all Christ paid for. Just 10 billion years. That's it. No. He paid all of our sins for all of eternity. Forever. The debt is paid. There's no more left on it. No more indebtedness. It's over. You don't owe a thing to God. Christ paid it all. Paid it for all of eternity. The full price for sin. And that's why he said, it's finished. Listen, you can't add anything to the work of Christ because his work is complete. You can only trust him in what he did for you. And if you do trust him, then when you die, and you will die someday... You will go to be with him in heaven. Why? Not because of anything you've ever done, but because your sins have been paid in full. God will never hold any of your sins against you because Jesus paid for all of them. Folks, that's the grace of God. That's the absolute grace of God. The miracle of darkness covering the land 
was God making a loud statement that in the death of his son, sin has been fully judged. The question is, have you heard him make that statement in your own heart? Have you responded to that? Have you trusted what God has said about his own son? That's the real issue. Have you ever repented of your sin, seen the hideousness of your sin, that it placed Christ on the cross, that alienated you from God, that you're a rebel, and you have decided, as God's worked in your heart, that I don't want to live like that anymore. You've turned from your sin. You've turned to Christ and believed that his sacrificial death is the sole basis for salvation. God's commentary on the death of Christ. It's a man's response. You either say, yes, I embrace it, or no, I reject it. I urge you to embrace it. Let's pray. Father, we are on sacred ground considering the cross. And I realize that every time the word is taught, it is sacred because it's your sacred word. But this is special. Lord, we can say thank you. But that seems so inadequate to say thank you for giving your son to die on our behalf. Now that we understand it wasn't just the physical pain, but far deeper, it was hell itself. What it must have cost you and pained you, Father, to do this to Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being our substitute. Thank you for enduring not only the shameful degradation of being crucified, but going to hell for us. Thank you, Lord, for the full payment of your death. May anyone here who has never responded to the gospel, may they understand it today. May they understand it like they've never understood it before, and may they be drawn to you. May their trust be in Christ alone and nothing that they've ever done for salvation. And Lord, I pray for those who somehow think that they have to keep themselves saved and keep doing things. May you free them from that. May they understand it's finished. It's over. May they rest in your finished work. Lord, for those of us who do know you, may we continue to preach the gospel to ourselves reminding us that we're not under condemnation. We'll never be condemned because Christ was condemned in our place. Pray that you help us to know your joy as we preach that message again and again to ourselves. We thank you for this. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.